This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. It's a tradition on this show that we have a special interview near Independence Day that focuses on just that, our independence. We visit with Terry Buckler, a farm kid and youngest member of the Green Berets raid on the Sun Tay Prison in Vietnam. He shares the story about the historic raid and how it's still used as a model for similar missions like the one to capture Osama bin Laden. It's our topic for this week's Farm in the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest concerns in 2022 for farmers are rising input prices. Where will prices go and how much might my fertilizer cost? Even with higher prices, of course, you're still going to need nitrogen. And in today's world, often we're looking for ways to increase bushels while using more sustainable farming methods. That led me to use Pivot BioProven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Look for a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Perhaps you've never heard of the Sun Tay Raid. However, its impact on special forces missions in the U.S. military is still seen today. It was the fall of 1970 and Terry Buckler was a 20-year-old Green Beret. He had grown up on a Missouri farm, yet on the night of November 21, 1970, he was on board a chopper headed 20 miles north of Hanoi on a raid to rescue POWs. Terry and I sat down to talk about that raid, its successes and failures, and its place in history. So take me back. You're just coming out of high school. How do you wind up uh, eventually getting into the Special Forces? Well, uh, when I graduated from high school... I, my dad's idea was once you graduate, you uh, leave the home and start your real life. And uh, I did, and uh, I was going to school, a grade school down in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and I ran out of money. So I came back home, went to work in a factory in uh, Centralia, Missouri, and uh, went up to the draft board just to kind of see where I stood on the draft. And a lady told me I'd probably be in the next round, so I said, well, put me in the next one that goes, which is March. And so I uh, volunteered for the draft. Uh, Three days later, while at Fort Leonard Wood, uh, uh, they put us all in a big room, brought in this Special Forces uh, gentleman and sergeant, and he was looking for volunteers for Special Forces. I didn't know a lot about it, but I knew if I was going to Vietnam, I wanted to go with the best, and uh, they, they are the best, so I stuck my paw up and uh, became uh, uh, volunteer for the Green Beret. I finished my basic training in my AIT, which is your military occupation uh, service, and went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia, and from Fort Benning went to Fort Bragg to begin my training for the Green Beret. And after the, the uh, initial course of Green Beret, I made it through that. Uh, the old song, 100 men will test today and only three were in the Green Beret, is pretty accurate. Uh, we jumped in with the, into our training. There was about 60 or 70 of us, and uh, 
we graduated 40 out of three classes. So it's pretty true, but uh, that's where it started. And uh, I was assigned to seventh group there at Fort Bragg. And I had volunteered for Vietnam, but uh, they weren't taking too many at that time. The things were kind of shutting down over there. So uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't get to go on that trip, but I was on another one. Yeah. Well, and we're going to get to there. I Talk about just being a Green Beret because it takes a special type of person. How do you, would you say you enjoyed it? You liked what you were doing? What, what word would we use to talk about how you thought about it? Well, uh, I would say liked. Uh, you know, uh, the Special Forces, uh, my dad, uh, World War II veteran, and when he took me to uh, get on the bus to go to Kansas City for my induction, we talked about it. That's the first time we'd really ever talked about the war and his, his role in the war in the Philippines and the South Pacific. But he said, you know, just take everything with a grain of salt and uh, grin and bear it. And that's what I did. And, uh, you know, uh, the physical aspect of Special Forces, I was in good physical shape. But there's also the mental side, and there was a question in me on that. But anybody in Special Forces has got a mental problem, probably. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just the way it works. But uh, they're uh, a tight group, uh, patriotic, as well as uh, their their missions are. Uh, they always can't talk about what they do, but uh, they're always there to keep this country free and uh, other nations as well. You mentioned that you didn't go immediately. So when you are headed to Vietnam, is it for the raid that we're going to talk about specifically? It was that at that point? Yes. Uh, I probably hold the only distinction of the only person being in South Vietnam and uh, was probably the deepest and the youngest behind enemy lines in the Vietnam War. Uh, they estimated when we uh, were told where we were going that there would be... A, Number one, a 50-50 chance of not making it back. And there would be anywhere from 100 to 200,000 NBA in the area. That was uh, kind of my induction into combat. What goes through your mind when you know that it's only a 50-50 shot that they're giving you that you come back? Well, when you're 20 years old, uh, a lot. <laughs> and uh, a buddy of mine was getting married that night back in Clark, Missouri. And uh, I thought through my mind, uh, I'll never forget his wedding date if I make it back. And, uh, you know, you, uh, I have strong faith. My, my approach was that if the good Lord wants me, here I am. And uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to not let that happen. But at the same time, uh, I'm not in control, and he is. Talk about then what the mission was, because some people will be familiar, but some won't at all with what was taking place and why you needed to go so far into North Vietnam. The, mission, the, the call came out on Smoke Bomb Hill, Bull Simons, who is an icon in Special Forces. He's like the John Wayne of Special Forces, had put the word out on Smoke Bomb Hill, which was the home of the Green Beret, that uh, he was looking for volunteers. And if you wanted to volunteer for a moderately hazardous mission, he called it, uh, show up at the little White House, we called it, and uh, I went down. There was about 500 Special Forces guys already there, and uh, Bull Simons came out on and said he was looking for volunteers, no TDY, temporary duty, and uh, didn't really tell us what the mission was, which is not uncommon. Uh, uh, Bull Simons, his uh, 
reputation preceded him and everybody knew that if Bull was leading it, it was going to be one fun mission. And uh, so that's the way it worked. We didn't know what we were going to be doing. We had trained for three months for this down in Eglin Air Force Base. We knew we were doing some type of rescue, but we didn't know where, when, or who. And, uh, and for three months we trained, and then uh, we were told to pack our bags. We packed our bags. Next night we flew out, and we landed in uh, Southeast Asia. We did not know exactly where we were at, but we knew it was Southeast Asia, or the old-timers knew. And uh, we were at Takli Air Force Base, which is uh, a CIA compound. And uh, we were basically put in the compound and uh, left there for about three days. And then uh, the word came down we were supposed to meet in the little auditorium at uh, 1800 hours. We went over there and uh, Bull Simons and Colonel Sidnor, who was at that time headed to the Ranger Battalion, and uh, came down and uh, he said, we're telling us what we're going to do tonight. And he said, uh, we're going to be, they pulled a big map down in North Vietnam, had a big circle around Hanoi and another one around Sante. And he said, gentlemen, we're going to Sante uh, to rescue 60 to 70 POWs. And uh, uh, if you do not want to go, now is the time to uh, say so. And it got just dead silence. And then about that time, it was like, the cannon went off. People jumped up and hollered, all right, let's go get them and let's go. And, uh, and he calmed us down a little bit and he said, you know, we have a 50-50 chance of not making it back. And if there is a breach in security, we're going to back up to the Sog River and make it bloody for them because there's no way we're going to get reinforcements in there. We were so far, we were 20 miles north east of Hanoi which is the, was the capital of North Vietnam at that time. So we had a lot to do in 30 minutes. Uh, our mission, our orders were take no prisoners because uh, we were going to be coming right back through that same area that we uh, tra traversed through. So uh, that was the mission. Uh, we had uh, three choppers uh, took us in. We had one chopper that uh, was... Uh, uh, crashed inside the POW camp and the reason for that uh, we had looked at different birds and you know initially when the planners and the planners you can't say enough about what they did and what a great job they did but um, they estimated we had to be in control of the guards within a minute because we didn't know if their orders were to assassinate the POWs if there was an escape so that was all considered. So in order to get into the compound, uh, there were uh, three guard towers, and uh, we took the guard towers out on the way in, uh, and, and they did that uh, with a, an HH-3, and it crashed inside the compound. There was 11 guys on Blue Boy, and once they hit the ground, they dispersed and eliminated all the threats, and then they started looking for POWs. Now, unfortunately, as we were landing, uh, we had trained, we had over 170 rehearsals. I mean, and the CIA had made a mock-up of the compound, which was very accurate. And we would go in when we weren't actually training and just study the terrain where we were at. So when we hit the ground, we would be already have our idea of what we're, where we're at and where we're headed.
but uh, we had uh, to take out uh, the guards. And just as we were landing, we had, uh, I was an RTO radio operator for Red Wine, the element. Captain Dan Turner, who was my uh, captain and uh, the commander on the uh, Red Wine, he and I were a two-man team. And our job was to get to the communications building as quick as we could so we could eliminate calling. Because we, we're 23 miles from Hanoi. Doesn't take too long to get get trucks down there with men. So... Uh, our mission was to get to the uh, camp uh, uh, communication building as quickly as we could. And just as uh, we had got to that building, uh, I heard I had a headset on my listening, and they said that, uh, you know, heard on the phone or on the radio, no items. Now, no items was a code word for POWs. So uh, they... Uh, did another search, making sure there's no man left behind. So uh, the bull actually, and by this time, Bull Simons had landed, and they went inside the compound searching to make sure that there was no POWs that were hiding or anything like that from us. So once that happened, we uh, uh, returned, uh, returned to the LZ, and the choppers were called back in. They left us when they when they dropped us off. They went out to another location and, and sat and waited for us to call them back in. And uh, so we got on the bird and we were doing head count. And the first head count we were short one man. So we did another head count and we were still short one man. So this was kind of a you know no man left behind. So the third head count uh, Dan Turner counted himself. So. <laughs> A little bit of confusion, but it didn't. We got out of there, and uh, we were flying, and it was kind of interesting. You know, I'm sitting there on the tailgate of the, with a PJ in between us, between Dan Turner and me. Uh, uh, PJs are uh, Air Force guys that uh, for search and rescue, and he was on a, had a minigun sitting there, and uh, just as we were looking and admiring the lights of Hanoi. I mean, it was like looking at a major city in the United States, the bright lights and everything. And all of a sudden, our chopper took a dive, and we thought we were crashing. And about that time, a big telephone pole shot up our butt, and that was a uh, SAM missile. So that night, they fired about 20, I think they fired 20, 25 SAMs that night. And uh, we got one, one of our pilots got shot down or two two pilots but one plane but uh next morning they were rescued so uh, the good thing about the mission uh we 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 proved that the united states could get in to the back door of hanoi get in and get out and we did not lose any men Uh, sergeant murray got shot in the back of the leg was the only guy only guy that wounded and uh, one of the Air Force guys on the Huey inside, or on the HH3 inside the compound, when it crashed, uh, one of the fire extinguishers fell off and it hit his ankle and broke it. That was our only injuries in the whole raid. You know, we were, as raiders, we were very disappointed. It wasn't until a few years later that we had a reunion, and it was an opportunity for the POWs and the raiders to get together and talk. The POW said the best thing that ever happened to him was a Sante raid. At that time, over there was a little over 500 POWs, and 50% of them had been held over five years. 
So, uh, and some of these guys have been in solitaire for five or six years too. So the day after the raid, all of there was uh, 13 camps scattered throughout North Vietnam. And five of them were inside of Hanoi and the rest of them were all over the country up on the China border and everything like that. So the NVA realized that if we did it once, we may do it again. So what they did, they brought all the POWs into Hanoi and put them in the Hanoi Hilton. Now they went from being maybe in solitaire or in a room with two or three other guys to a room of 50 or 60 of them together. And they were able to uh, really become a military unit. In fact, they, the 4th Air Wing is what they call themselves. And, uh, you know, the pecking order is highest offer ranking on down. And they were able to, I mean, they, they did plays, they, did, they taught each other calculus and physics and, you know, uh, French, different languages. So it kept the mind going. And it, if you talk to the POWs, they'll tell you it gave them a chance to vent some of their anger. So they, they weren't so, they just felt like, uh, you know, they were doing their job and we were doing our job. Yeah. And the, the good thing, too, the beating stopped, the food got better. And, uh, you know, they had the camaraderie. I mean, some of these guys were really not healthy because of years as a POW. And uh, so they were able to help one another. That, you know, some guys would had needed help eating, you know, while if they'd get sick or something like that. So uh, the, the Sante Raid, in their mind, it, to this day, every one of the POWs I've ever spoken to, uh, thinks the Sante raid was the best thing happening to him. You've mentioned that, of course, in some ways the raid wasn't a success because there weren't POWs there, but yet today we look back on it as being a success and it's used as an example. So talk about that. Why was a raid that, in a sense, didn't achieve its mission held up as, as a great thing? Well, uh, that's a very, a very good point. And today the raid is taught at all the military schools. And uh, it's, if you look at every raid that's been done since Sante, it's a model modeled after the Sante raid. And a good example is Bin Laden. They crashed a chopper, you know. They, the only major differences of the raids today versus the raid that we did is the technology that they have today is tremendous compared to what we... I mean, we use World War II ski goggles to... Uh, uh, keep the sand out of our eyes when the chopper landed and, uh, you know, diffuse the... Uh, when we landed over in Sante, what they did is they dropped flares over the camp so it lit it up and we could, you know, see what we were doing. Uh, it also showed the enemy who where we were, but that was just part of it. But at the same time, the element of surprise is what we had and that worked great for our, for our team. But the, the raid itself is uh, the planning that went into it, the execution, the training, uh, all was superb. Yeah. And today, when they do a raid uh, on anybody, they've, they take some of the information that they learned in Sante and apply it to their mission. You spoke about it briefly, but what was your role? What were you doing on the ground once you hit there? Because you kind of talked about the full piece, but I'd be interested in what you were doing there. I went out for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, uh, my, my mission, when I first went down there, I was an E-5 sergeant, no combat experience. 
There was four of us on the raid that had never been in combat. My, my mission was the RTO, radio operator for Red Wine, that element. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, in, in Special Forces, you're cross-trained on several MOSs, and uh, communications was one of them. So it wasn't, my, my real was demolitions, but uh, uh, we had a couple of demo charges for the bridge, and then we blew a hole in the wall. And then we blew up the chopper that crashed inside the compound. So, but I didn't. I wasn't involved in those explosions. But uh, uh, Dan and I were the only two-man team, and so uh, I learned a lot. Uh, he saved my life a couple of times, and vice versa. I did his too. So, uh, unfortunately, Dan passed away a few years back. But uh, uh, my book is dedicated to him, and he's a great man. Uh, you know the memorable moments uh, in my book when I was writing the book, and I'm not a, a writer by any stretch. And most people don't know I can read and write. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, when I I was writing the book, I sent out to all of the raiders and all the POWs that uh, I was writing this book, and if they had a memorable moment that they w would like to include in it, uh, let me know. And I got about 40 of them, uh, kind of a mix of raiders, POWs, flight pilots, and stuff like that. And uh, uh, my most memorable moment was when we came back to Fort Bragg at Pope Air Force Base and we got off the, uh, debarked from the plane. I, I looked around, and, you know, I was single, 20-year-old buck, you know, who knows. And uh, a couple of my buddies picked me up, and I, as I was... Looking out, I saw the families. Now these guys that were had, and I, it went through my mind, they had laid down their lives, literally, to for their other comrades. They were given up being a father, a husband, you know, an uncle, a brother, whatever. It was, and that just has always stuck in my mind, and that that is my most memorable moment about the raid that we have in this country men and women that are willing to lay down their lives to protect what we are blessed with. And sometimes I, I think we forget that. And, uh, but uh, it was that stuck in my mind, and we'll, I'll go to my grave with it. Yeah. Talk about the book uh, that you wrote. It's been out for just a little while now, but uh, talk about that and where people can find it. The name of the book is Who Will Go Into Sante POW Camp? And Sante is S-O-N-T-A-Y, two words. And uh, the book is on Amazon. It's at Borders, uh, Walmart, uh, online, and let's see. I think that's about it. But uh, it's we've got good reviews on it. I think we've got a five-star crossed on it. And so, uh, And it's a book. Uh, it starts out talking about growing up on a farm and in my childhood and how I got into the military and all of that and then it talks about the training we went through and actual on the ground when we uh, at the raid and then uh, just some of the things that uh, there's a, a chapter on there or one from the other 40 people that give me their memorable moments so it's been uh, people found it very enjoyable and uh, to read and uh, it's, it's the first book written by somebody that was actually on the raid in, on the ground. So, but uh, I don't take credit for it. There's a lot of 
guys, all the POWs and other guys were all putting their two cents worth in on it as well. I really appreciate Terry's service and the time he took to reach out to those impacted by the raid to compile his book. He mentioned to me there should also be a new documentary out soon that talks about the raid, so you may want to be watching for that. And don't forget about Terry's book as well. It's a good read and told from the people that were involved in the mission. That's it for this Independence Day special edition of our show. I appreciate you listening. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.